Mac Power Users, episode 649, Workflows with William Gallagher. Hello, gang. This is David Sparks. I am here for the Mac Power Users, joined by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? I am excited. We have a guest today and I'm looking forward to talking to. Welcome to the show, William Gallagher. Hello, but 649. Have I heard them all? I think, you know, a good proportion. Yeah. I didn't realize well, that, it was that many. Well, that's, that's good to hear. We are not messing around here at the Mac Power Users. <laughs> Um, William is a writer, a tech geek. He does uh, written Doctor Who. He's got a, a great resume. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Before we get started, however, just a few um, housekeeping items before we get started. Stephen, how is it going with the calendar Kickstarter? Yeah, the Kickstarter is is going great. At this point, we've been running about a week and a half. It runs through August 5th. There's a link in the show notes if you haven't checked it out yet. Uh, but yeah, it is on track to beat last year in, in terms of money raised and backers, which is really exciting. It came out of the gate super strong. So if you have already backed it, uh, thank you so much. It was great to see it just leap to life uh, when I launched it at the beginning of July. And yeah, I'd be honored if people would would go uh, consider it. Yeah, the, like the day you started it, the permits got issued for indoor studios. So I'm like, uh, that's the thing. First thing I'm going to need to hang on the wall. So I got awesome. mine ordered. Um, yeah, so check it out. It's it's uh, Stephen's calendar, all custom photography from Stephen. It's got, this year it's focused on user interface and software, right? If I'm telling the story right, you tell me. Yeah. And then, uh, so every month you get a beautiful picture, but Stephen has like loaded the calendar with nerdy app. Uh, Mac dates, and I uh, I can't wait to get mine. So I uh, I'm looking forward to it, and everybody should check it out. Got a link in the show notes for that uh, today on more power users. I uh, have always been a fan of tea, but I drink primarily like green tea. And William has decided to set me right on what <laughs> why I'm not drinking British tea and why I'm not drinking it right. So we're going to get into a tea debate today, um, more power users, so we can kind of figure that out. I'm looking forward to having that discussion. But before we do that, uh, William, uh, I didn't realize you were a listener of the show. I was aware of all the stuff you were doing, and I knew you were out there making cool stuff for the Mac. But um, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. It's, it's kind of slightly weird. I'm not used to responding when you talk. I hear your voice saying these things, you know, most weeks and things, but now I have to actually answer. I think that's good. Where else would anybody go who was into this stuff anyway? Yeah, there you go. Where else would you go except the Mac Power users? Uh, so, William, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you covered it when you said I was a writer, but I realize uh, I'm kind of a writer at heart. And can, can you have writer plus? I've been a full-time freelance writer since about 1994. But there are times when I've done so much work for, say, the BBC that they have literally counted me as staff and once gave me a redundancy package I wasn't expecting. Um, I do uh, lots of script writing. I, I actually I identify as a script writer. But really, I write a lot of prose and books and articles as well. And for me, um, writing is an expression of what I'm trying to figure out. So I write to think, but uh, I have to make something out of it then. I have to take some an idea further. So I produce a lot of events. And just a few days before we started speaking, I've been appointed deputy chair of the Writers Guild 
here in Britain, which is just, I mean, I aspired to be a member of the Guild and now to be in an office, officer of it, working with a particularly strong team they've got now. And actually, right now, there's so many things going on for writers in the UK that it's it's a really daunting time here, um, not least because of Brexit, but so many other things going on. And the Writers Guild is like this thin line protecting us. So I, I need to step up and work with this great team, but it's a fantastic time to be with them. Yeah. And I want to get into that with the show because you have largely been kind of an independent spirit since 1994 as a freelance mm-hmm. writer, you kind of control your own workflows. And I would assume you don't have a lot of collaborators, but we're going to learn more about that during the show. And now here you are kind of running up the, I guess, I guess in the U S we'd call it the writer's union uh, for the UK. So you've probably got a lot of commitments and meetings and things related to that as well. I do actually in America it is the Writers Guild. There's a Writers Guild of America West and East, so WGA West and East, okay. incredibly strong organization. I mean, really powerful and quite a leading light for writers there as well. So yes, uh, I suppose I suddenly I have a, a boss. But I said that about the the BBC. Uh, at one point, uh, I was actually I was freelance, but I was working for three totally separate sections. BBC. In fact, I worked in Television Centre, that's famous building here. And one day I came around the corner and found my three editors talking to each other. And they had just discovered I worked for all of them. All of these areas going on. But that was all I did. Was I'm that a freelancer. good or was that bad? To this day, I don't know. But um, <laughs> I was freelance and I loved the work so much. And I loved the people there so much that I didn't look for anything else until suddenly... BBC in one of its cuts of freelancers uh, got rid of me. And I went from, I suppose, three editors, really three-ish jobs to nothing. And over the next few weeks or months, I had to build it back up. And suddenly I had 15 editors and sometimes up to 30 jobs in different places. And all of it survivable because of OmniFocus. In fact, um, my wife Angela said uh, two, two or three months into it that I seemed lighter than when I was just doing the BBC stuff. And it's because I just got into OmniFocus the day they got rid of me. <laughs> I mean, we've talked to so many entertainers over the years. Um, Rod Cordry uh, came on the lost episode of the Mac Power Users, and he you know, had moved to L.A. to start a TV series. It got canceled after like three episodes. And he also, he said, look, if I'm going to make a go of this, I've got to be ahead of the game with technology. I've got to understand how to make all this stuff work if I'm going to be competitive. And it sounds to me like that's kind of been a theme for yours as well through your career, where you yes. use the technology to to juggle all these gigs and keep everything going. Oh, so much so. You remind me, I have a relative who is convinced I am a geek who loves computers. And the way I look at it, I suppose, yes, I will be at this Mac for 12 hours a day, but I'm not thinking of it as a computer. I'm thinking of it as uh, it's the book that I'm writing. It's the video series I'm making. It's what you use these things for. And I, I really don't think I would be doing everything I was doing if I was on a PC, because at the times I have been, you just you have to think so much about the PC. You have to juggle with it. Whereas with a Mac, it just kind of does it. And it does it so well, you want to do more things with it. And you do more things with it. And then it does more stuff. Um, I, I think I actually own my career to the Mac. And, and it's very strange to look back at this now because one of my very first jobs uh, at BBC Television was on a show called Micro Live in the 80s. And I worked on a feature for them where they had the original Mac in the corner of the studio. And I, to think that that little box 
would become so important to me. It's uh, slightly spooky. Yeah, where did you first bump into the Mac? Was it on that show? Uh, it would have been in that studio, Television Center, yeah. And then shortly afterwards, I got a job writing computer manuals. Uh, I was writing on a Mac SE. Very shortly afterwards, a Mac SE 30. Uh, sorry, yeah, SE 30. And then slightly after that, Mac SE 30 with System 7. So Yeah, SE 30 was my, like, that was my dream Mac. That's yeah. the one that it's got away rod. from me. Yeah. Yes, yes, gorgeous machine. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I, I was feeling old. Uh, every single specification I mentioned there, I thought dated me. But clearly, you, you can't be as old as that. So we're fine. We're, we're yeah, we're fine. We're, we're fine. <laughs> so you were you were working in the industry before you went independent. It sounds like. Yes, um, I wrote computer manuals for, actually for McDonnell Douglas, and I joined them thinking I was going to get to write about aircraft, and instead they had a local government computer system. I was writing manuals about government software. Um, it's, uh, here in the UK, a very potent thing is the Poltax. There were riots about it and things, and it, its official name was the Community Charge. And because I had to write the manuals and I had to type Community Charge, hundreds of times over the time I was there. I keep forgetting to say poll tax. And I, I promise you there are British people who won't talk to me because they think yeah. I'm on the wrong side of that yeah. discussion. <laughs> yeah. It's funny though. I mean, so you started doing like technical manuals, but you knew where you wanted to end up. And I mean, you ended up writing for Doctor Who. So, I mean, what a journey you've been on. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I, I managed to get a job at being a features editor on a computer magazine, which was quite a big leap. So it's long gone now, but it's called, it was called PC Director, a UK uh, title. And I actually, I so vividly remember the boardroom meeting where I realized I was actually not a technical person. I was a magazine guy. Uh, we're having this, there's this big production meeting about changing the the release date of the issue. They wanted to bring it out a day earlier in future to beat the major rival. And I happened to know, because I was in, so into magazines and so into creating stuff, that there are various weekly women's magazines in the UK that had done exactly that one year before. Used to come out on a Thursday, one moved to Wednesday, other moved to Tuesday, then to Monday. And after about uh, six months, they're back where they started. They spent an absolute fortune. And I mentioned this in the meeting, and this crowd of geeks just shunned me because it was a women's magazine we're different we're better and i started looking around after yeah. that and actually i ended up on radio times the uk equivalent of uh, tv guide and then suddenly i was talking with drama producers and like that that's it i'm home this is where i belong and the mac followed you on the journey all the way, including one horrible time when I did Radio Times in the morning and then BBC News Online's entertainment desk in the afternoon. And when I got to that desk in the afternoon, my PowerBook G3 had shattered its screen in my bag. Ooh. That's a moment that lives out. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you brought a, a PowerBook up because I was going to ask. I mean, thinking about the, the time frame we're talking about in those early days, those technical writing days you were doing, the Mac. Basically, every computer was a desktop. There were some portables, but it wasn't like what we have today. I mean, when you made that transition from desktop to using a notebook, like how did that free up or change the way that you worked? It became a desktop machine. I just kept moving the diff to different desks. I did actually use the original Mac Portable. I had a loaner Mac Portable from Apple that I was writing about at the time. So I, I had that whole experience of crushing the blood in your legs when you had it on your lap and things. Yeah. And 
that was my first experience of portable, and actually, I really liked it. Uh, I think if, I bought an LC uh, around, that was my first ever Mac I bought myself. But then shortly afterwards, it was PowerBooks all the way, because at the time, I was doing a lot of traveling to London and back and forth. I'm based in Birmingham, which is uh, about 100 miles outside London. So uh, you working on the train, working when you were there, PowerBooks just became I was going to say that's the logical choice, but the truth is I just really wanted one. So mm-hmm. I kept buying them. I was a, I had a friend at the time who was a PC enthusiast, and he had a compact briefcase PC. Do you guys, are, you no. guys remember those things? I'm familiar. Yeah. It was literally like carrying, it was literally like carrying an IBM PC on its side with a handle, and it dropped down to this like, I don't know, five or six inch screen. It was, I looked at that and I'm like, you know, I'm a geek and that's the ugliest computer I've seen in my entire life. I can't believe you're carrying that thing around. (laughs) I do remember adverts when I was on that computer magazine, there were adverts for the Osborne portable computer. And you'd always see an incredibly smart, fashionable businesswoman carrying this thing and her knuckles would be white from the weight. (laughs) Uh, William has not lost the thread with technology because in addition to writing uh, screenplays and um, writing books. You're also a journalist, and you also regularly contribute to the Apple Insider, right? Yes, Apple Insider. I was working with them just moments ago, writing about Apple TV Plus and the Emmy nominations. So it's like this crossover of technology and drama. I'm very at home there as well. Yeah, so that's really nice that you've been able to kind of keep your foot in the game at the same time that you're pursuing these other things. I, I'm just really impressed with all the output you do, William. Well, thank you. I, part of me thinks it's important. Uh, when I read something, a software review, and I am an absolute software nut, far more than I am hardware. If I read a software review, I can tell when the person hasn't actually used it. And I, yeah. I find that offensive. And then I, when somebody has used it, you can see whether they just don't, they tested it properly, which is fine. That's like, reading the book when you're interviewing somebody, that's that's good. But then you can also tell when someone has really, really used it in a, a practical, get the job done, sent away, not a review, but real use. And I think that's where the value is in software reviewing, in writing, and being part of somebody who's actually a part of the business that needs this stuff, I think is very beneficial to me as a software reviewer. But also, of course, it benefits me in everything else. I, when you say that, it's something, I, it struck me that not... A couple of people on the drama side discovered I write computer stuff and were kind of astonished that I did that. How did I have the time for that? But there are also people on the computer side who had no idea that I did Doctor Who radio dramas, for example. I, I somehow, I don't know why, I quite like that, that I've got these two worlds. I feel like I sit in the middle. Isn't it Steve Jobs do that thing about uh, sitting on the fence between art and technology? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a go- gorgeous place to be, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think when you're passionate about this stuff, it's not that hard. You know, it it becomes fun. Yes, absolutely. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Go to onepassword.com slash NPU in all caps to get 20% off. 1Password is the password manager Stephen and I use to keep track of all of these passwords that keep us running on the Internet. One of the things I love about 1Password is the way they just keep adding additional features. And they just did that recently with their sign in with anything feature. With so many ways to sign into apps and services, there's even more to keep track of. You guys have all seen those boxes, sign in with Google, sign in with Facebook, whatever. 
Those features are nice because they let you reuse an account you already have instead of creating a new one with a unique password for every site. But as convenient as these options are, they're not hassle-free. They still involve many steps, clicks, and passwords. So it's easy to get lost in the sea of choices and forget which account or provider you used for which website. I just did that the other day. I was trying to log into my Readwise account, and it took me 20 minutes to figure out I had done it with my Amazon account. So now when you visit a site and click something like Sign In with Google, 1Password will remember your choice and offer to save it for you. And then when you return to the site, 1Password will seamlessly authenticate you with your Google account. It's as easy as it sounds and lets 1Password take care of all the details for you. This is just one of the many ways that 1Password makes your life on the internet easier. I love having a place on my Mac and on the internet where my secure data is secure behind a password of my choosing. 1Password gives me all of those features and it can give them to you as well. Just go to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get 20% off and get started today. And thank you, 1Password, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. So let's talk a little bit about where uh, where you are today with technology. What sort of Apple gear are you using? Um, I really, I suppose I have three machines. The two main ones are I have a, an M1 um, Mac Mini, which is my I'm surprised that is my main daily driver. I have a 14-inch MacBook Pro uh, that I got for a particular project, and it's so nice. Uh, things are slowly moving over to it. Um, uh, I thought I'd actually plug the MacBook Pro into my main monitor, but I don't. I leave that for the Mac Mini, and the main monitor is a 49-inch uh, ultra-wide Samsung piece. Um, and in front of me now with it, there, both of those machines are there, but I also have an 11-inch iPad Pro, and on a desk behind me, there's an old Intel uh, Mac Mini acting as a server. Do you even remember Intel Macs? <laughs> what is this? Is that is that like the 86 uh, series? Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's doing fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are still on Intel, and they always give me a hard time when I just keep talking about the Apple Silicon. But it's just like, and I know you're mainly a software guy over a hardware guy, but it, it is just so shocking to me how Apple resurrected the Mac line. I mean, people were, I mean, Stephen and I at one point were saying, well, is it still going to be Mac power users if there's no more Mac? And and then all of a sudden, Apple pulls this rabbit out of their hat and the Mac is is doing better than probably any other hardware in the line at this point. Mm-hmm. Yes. I remember the last transition uh, from PowerPC to Intel. Uh, I'm, I'm very conscious of uh, what an amazingly difficult move it is. And to bring everybody with you so smoothly. Uh, I, I think a lot about production and the logistics of physically making this stuff happen. It's just profoundly impressive to me that any company pulls it off and Apple keeps on pulling it off so well. Yeah. And better every time. I mean, when we had yeah. the Intel transition, there was a lot of software that took years to kind of recover. Like Microsoft Word, I know you're a writer. Yeah. Microsoft Word was pretty bad for a couple of years. Like there, I remember you would hit the M key and there'd be like a pause and then the M would show up on the screen like it was thinking no, about No, no, it. no, no. That was a feature. Okay. That was different. <laughs> I, actually, I think Microsoft shot themselves in the foot over the iPad by choosing not to go on the iPad, figuring that will stop people buying the iPad. People bought the iPad, found they couldn't use Word, had to find an alternative. And now when you find there's an alternative and you like it, suddenly you start using that alternative everywhere. And I think that's why Word dropped from this 
ubiquitous, uh, what's considerably less than ubiquitous, half ubiquitous yeah, kind of software <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I agree. I mean, but, and now Word is actually pretty good on the iPad. They, they've mm-hmm. really come together, but it took them a while. And I think the other thing that's hurt Microsoft and, frankly, Apple, too, is just the ubiquity of Google devices in schools. Kids are growing up with, with um, uh, Google Docs now yeah. instead of Word, and I think that's going to change the landscape as they work their way into the workforce. You know, I think that's good. Yeah, I think so too. I'm using Google Sheets for a project and it's so ugly compared to Excel and numbers. And I don't think Google, I, I've done one project with BBC where there were three of us working on a project at the same time. And that is very impressive that yeah. you could do this. But still, it's, yeah, it's like, it's very Microsoftian in that, uh, yes, I suppose it does it. But it's not very obvious how it does it sometimes, and the design is, I find, ugly, and it's just not a pleasure to use where Apple stuff is. And now, of course, you can do exactly that collaboration with pages and numbers. Well, at least not exactly, but near yeah. enough. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely want to talk about that stuff as we get through your workflows. But before we do that, let, so so you've got the the M1 Mac Mini as your primary driver, but then you got the 14 inch MacBook Pro. Uh, can you, for the type of work you do, can you tell much of a difference? Because the MacBook Pro is obviously a more powerful chip. Um, is yeah. it like, does it work faster for you, or is the type of work you do so so much, you know, um, single core stuff that you probably can't even tell? I can tell every time I use it. Okay, um, okay, good. I, I actually I measured this. I do uh, a sheet tube series for writers who use Mac gear, and I did one, I just did a typing test. I did a typing test and exporting, and the kind of things I typically do with pages or final draft or something. And I just, I screen recorded them both on uh, the Intel Mac, the M1 Mac Mini and the MacBook Pro, and then I just ran the videos side by side. And the typing was faster. On the MacBook Pro, who yeah. knew that your typing speed? I mean, I, I'm a quite a fast typist, but not very fast. And the difference was appreciable. You know, by the end of this two or three minute video, um, I was a sentence or through further on because of it. So even in that, even every single thing you do is faster. And just, uh, I, I like speed, but it's responsiveness. Uh, think of it and do it. Uh, launch the app. Get on with this. Look up that fact. Get back out to what you were doing. And on the MacBook Pro, it's just it's it's gold. It feels like gold using it. Yeah, and the the other thing on this, and here's here's a point I haven't raised in the Apple Silicon favor in a long time, but just I was noticing the other day because I I'm using my Apple Silicon laptop exclusively, but just the way you lift the lid and the thing jumps to ready. Yes, you know it's like yes. it's like a really eager puppy. You know, I I just can't. <laughs> Because I mean, I'm used to the thing where you open the lid and you kind of got to give it a minute to think about things before it's going to give you any response. And this yeah. thing just like, it, it, I think it explains why people are so cranky about the iPad lately. It's because you get these Macs that do so much of this stuff that like all of a sudden you start to see all the warts on the iPad. Our BBC News, I use all PCs and you would go in in the morning, you switch them on, you would go make a cup of tea. And come back, and it still wouldn't have got through. So even yeah. Intel Max seemed fast to me, but yes, screen lights up just like it did with Craig Federici, which I thought was silly at the time. He opens it up, it glows. That's exactly what happens at about five o'clock every morning for me. Yeah, we'll talk some about that 
49 inch ultra widescreen. <laughs> We've spoken to a few people on the show over the years that that live the widescreen lifestyle and everyone seems to have their own thoughts on why it's better for them or the way they have it set up. So walk us through the decision making behind that display and then how you're using it with Mac OS. I, I, it's a tale of three monitors. I'll do the first two faster. Um, I spent more money than I really had at the time on the Mac Mini moving to Apple Silicon. And I just thought, I don't really care that much about the monitor. Um, not, at the time, I wasn't doing a lot of video editing or anything. So just a, any basic monitor. So I got something that was a regular size. I think it was 24 inches. It started to give me headaches. Uh, the resolution was so poor. And eventually, I just decided to try something else. I got to use a 34-inch for a while. And I couldn't go back from a 34 to a 24. And I just, I got steadily more. It was one night when I realized I needed one more document on the screen for one particular job. So I tried the 49-inch. Uh, and uh, in, well, actually, basically, as much as I love it, I actually want more. I would rather it was wider. I would very much wish it was taller, actually. But what I've got... um. Uh, it's quite hard slipping between this and the MacBook Pro's 14-inch screen. It's it's very much an adjustment of how I use Windows. Because uh, right now I have a keyboard maestro script that will fire up. But Apple Insider, for example, I think I must use seven apps during a typical day with them. And keyboard maestro opens them all up, slots them into different spots uh, on the screen, hides a few until I need them. Um, I, I can't stand Chrome, but... There are some things I do, up inside and other stuff that need it, um, but I don't want it in my face. So Keyboard Maestro puts it into a second space and then comes back to space one so I don't have to think about it at all. And on the MacBook Pro, uh, I do use spaces a little, but I tend to be more iPad-like, one app full screen at a time, which I'm honestly still getting used to, even after all these months. Yeah, you know, so the 49-inch, I... I have to spend some time behind one of these someday to get a feel for it. The The turnoff for me is the, the screen resolution itself. I am yeah. definitely one of those people that one of those Apple sheep that really likes a really crisp resolution. And even as I yes. get older and my eyes aren't as good, I wear reading glasses. And when I sit down at a screen that is like, like a, my, I was at my sister-in-law's house and they've got a gaming PC there and that screen looks like garbage to me. And I know it was an expensive screen, but it, you know, it's built for gaming, not for like reading. And that's the that's the thing with these super wide screens to me is they they usually the resolution isn't that tight. Yeah, it's just uh, fifty one twenty by fourteen forty. Uh, I have the benefit, I suppose, that um, from 2012 or so onwards, I had about six, seven years with a 27-inch iMac, so just before the Retina one came to. And I thought that screen was gorgeous, but it wasn't Retina. And then I went to that Mac Mini, and I got the cheaper screen for it. So in comparison, this is nicer. In fact, I, I, the first yeah. thing I noticed was how steady the text seemed. I hadn't noticed it wasn't steady before, but it felt rock solid. But then, of course, I went into an Apple store, and I saw a studio display, and it's like, yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, that was your mistake. That don't look mm -hmm. at them. Don't look mm -hmm. at those. <laughs> but then, so you've got the super wide. So do you? I guess you've explained already. You're using Keyboard Maestro just to locate windows, like to the right and left and center. So you've got your screen setups. Yeah, I I'm still playing with this. I've just been looking at things like Moom and Mosaic and stuff to see whether they'd be handier 
for me because Kimba Maestro, I, I adore it. Uh, setting up the specific thing in the windows, it got you know, you're putting in specific uh, pixel resolutions of how yeah. wide things had to be. And now I've done it, it's fine. But it, if I ever want to change anything, I can't remember how I found out the measurements and things. Gets and tedious. all of these things, yeah. yeah, they're fine. But um, I've just in the last couple of weeks started using Bunch, and Bunch isn't uh, usable for controlling windows. So I can get it to control Keyboard Maestro. And then I ended up putting more into Keyboard Maestro uh, for it. So my window arrangement is changing. But I, I like the fact that um, I can push a button on my Stream Deck and it will launch a bunch for screenwriting and that that will fire off Keyboard Maestro and just get rid of everything I don't need except Final Draft or Pages or whatever it has to be that day. And that, I know it's all it's just launching a few apps and hiding a few others, yeah. but the fact that it's in one move, it's it helps me switch my mind to a new job. And and I have to do that quite a lot during a typical day. I love doing that during a typical day, but this feels like it enables the transition. Right? Writer skill stuff is done for today. I'm on this now. And it's quite cleansing in a yeah, way. Yeah, it is. Like the screen setup idea. I'm a big fan of that. I feel like when your computer arranges itself for the next work, then it makes it easier to do the next work. And uh, like you, I have been experimenting with Bunch as well. That's a, the, from our friend Brett Terpstra. It's a, it's an app that allows you to launch apps and close apps and do all sorts of like screen setup things with a text file. So the beauty of it is they're very easily editable. Like if you want to make sure that it closes mail when you start writing, you just type exclamation point mail and then it closes the mail application or if you want to open mail you do that without the exclamation point so it makes it really easy to like set these things up but it doesn't do um screen setups quite the way keyboard maestro does and so the power move i've been trying with that is there's a great app called moom you had mentioned it earlier with moom you can save setups of apps and say i want these apps arranged this way and then you can save a keyboard shortcut to them so what I do is I run a bunch and then I pause like three seconds because you can do this in a bunch and then hit the keyboard shortcut for the moon window arrangement. And that's a lot easier than trying to like, you know, dial in pixel sizes in Keyboard Maestro. You should try that. I did not realize that you could have the keyboard shortcut. That changes everything. Yeah. I love keyboard shortcuts. Okay, thank you. Okay, that's all. You and me both, brother. <laughs> yeah, so it's under the um, in bunch, under the custom setting. Any custom window arrangement you have, you can tie a keyboard shortcut to it. So that's the trick. Just so so many keyboard shortcuts, so few keys yeah. on the keyboard. I was in a newsroom once, and I, I can't remember how this came up, but I told somebody what my favorite keystroke was. I can't remember now. It was like it was an Adobe Photoshop thing. You really had to contort both hands. And I told her this, and she looked at me, and the entire newsroom was just staring at me like this strange thing in the corner. But I was right. Don't look, are you looking at me like that now? Oh, no. No, in Maybe. fact, William, right now you are among family. You can just like <laughs> talk about that stuff. All of us Mac Power users, we get you. We've been there. Yeah. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> One traditional strong suit of the iPad is writing workflows. Uh, really, from the beginning, I mean, way back when they first announced that they had that weirdo keyboard dock. Where does the iPad fit in for you? recently it's been the thing I've taken away with me when I don't think I'm going to have a time to write, but I might. Or if I'm going to an event and I don't want to 
uh, schlep around with the uh, MacBook or leave it in, you know, um, cloakrooms and things. And I also actually add events if I'm chairing events, and I do that quite a bit. I will present from it because it's so you take it off the magic keyboard and it's just this small glass in front of you who doesn't interrupt the view of anybody for it. Um, I, it's actually quite a long time now since I wrote uh, Doctor Who radio things, but a friend on there, John Dorney, who's uh, an actor and an exceptional writer, has done hundreds of episodes for them, and they are, they are amazing. He writes exclusively in pages all his scripts on an iPad for it and completely loves it. And I'm, I'm he's so convincing about it, and he writes so well, I'm tempted. But then I love the full keyboard on the MacBook Pro. Yeah. If I'd bought the MacBook Pro first... I wouldn't have bought the iPad, I think. I don't think I could have justified it to myself. But my old 12.9-inch iPad died last year sometime. I was iPad-less for a bit. I was portable-less for a bit. Uh, So I bought the iPad, and then later I got funding to buy the MacBook Pro, and so I have them both. And because it's that way around, I feel I can just pick the nearest screen up at any time and get on with anything. Uh, I definitely prefer longer form writing on the MacBook Pro, but I have written thousands of words on the iPad, especially actually in that same Apple Store trip when I saw uh, a magic keyboard for the iPad. And I just, yeah, I caved instantly. I typed one word on it and bought that. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how much money I've spent over the Mac gear. Um, get me out of this. Tell me something nice, say. You, you approve of magic keyboards, please. Yes, no. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having the iPad be more laptop like, at least in form, has been good for me. Um, and the trackpad support, of course, is really awesome. And I, uh, yeah, my, you know, I've been using mostly an iPad mini, but I, I've dusted off the iPad Pro that I had to run the beta on. And it is nice to have the keyboard and it can sit up on a table by itself. It's a pretty sweet setup. I completely agree. I'm just slightly surprised that I do because when we first got cursor control and it looked a bit crude in it, the little circle thing came on. And then we got a keyboard with the magic trap and it looked like it was pretending to be a laptop. I was thinking I've used an iPad for all these years through touch. And when it was a 12.9, it was big enough that I felt like my hands were in the work, that I was kind of kneading away at the words. Um, but then, yeah, you try it and I'm an instant convert. So what do I know? You know, it's it's funny. I just recently discovered in a box my old Tandy WP2, which if you want to date yourself, that is a dated computer. <laughs> it, it's basically a keyboard with an 8-inch LCD screen on it, and it only writes text files. So I, I got all through law school with that, and um, and then I would take it home and plug it into a Mac and download the text file. But the... Um, I was looking at that and I was thinking, I remember paying like $150 for this computer and the keyboard for my iPad was $300. It was twice <laughs> as much for the keyboard for my iPad, but it is a good keyboard, but man, that, that, that's crazy. <laughs> I know you have also gone down the stream deck rabbit hole, William, which yes. one did you get and what are you using it for? Uh, well, to tell you the truth, I was actually sent to review one of the 15-inch, uh, sorry, 15-inch, 15-button one. Yeah. But I was sent it after I'd placed an order with Amazon to buy it and before it was dispatched. So I was able to claw that back and just got the review copy. And that was very nice. And I wrote what I had to write about it and I featured all these things. And I just got steadily more and more hooked. And about uh, maybe three weeks ago, I had a 
camel, camel, camel um, notification that the price had dropped. And it had dropped so considerably from about £250 here to about £180 that I just, I bought it. So it's in front of me right now. In fact, actually, both of them are in front of me. So how many buttons is that? Too many. Yeah. You can never have too many buttons, guys. And then I do have a problem, though. Uh, the new one uh, said, oh, right, yeah, you've got this old one. Do you want me to copy all the buttons across? I said, yes, please. And it copied all of the images, but most of the buttons, what they did, didn't copy over. So uh, I have a button that um, switches on and on-air uh, lights out in my uh, hallway and launches various apps and uh, kills our focus modes and things for when I'm doing podcasting stuff. And I can't remember how I did any of that. And the button, it says on-air, but it doesn't do anything yet for some reason. So I've got to relearn all of that. Yeah, and, you know, a bit of news here is Better Touch Tool, the app that we just keep loving, has a beta now where they've basically allowed you to program all of the stream deck buttons through better touch tool. And it's done so well that you could just replace the stream deck software with it and just run better touch tool as your, as your stream deck programming tool. I mean, it's just, I don't know. The stream deck just continues to excel for Mac users. I've heard from so many listeners that bought them because of that show we did on them. And they, uh, they all seem to love them. I mean, you know, sometimes when we talk yeah. about hardware, we get we hear from people that aren't happy with it. But I, I know I love mine. That's for sure. Why is it so good? When um, I have a thing, I've, I do quite a lot of translation stuff. I mean, that makes it sound like I'm cleverer than I am. I mean, I have to read a lot of stuff in French and things. And you're opening Safari, and Safari's translation is amazing. But that having to wait until the button is available and then clicking on the button and then choosing Convert to English, I just have as a button now on Stream Deck. And yes, it still takes the same amount of time, but I press the button and I think about other things. And I look back and there's Le Monde in perfect English for me. Yeah. I think uh, with our audience, the reason it lands so well is because we're geeky. You know, there <laughs> people who listen to Mac Power users want to get more out of their tech, and having a little panel that changes, like for me, I it changes for me. If I'm in Mail, it gives me one set of buttons, and if I'm in Safari, it gives me a different set of buttons. And I think having that there is just so useful. It's like what the touch bar was supposed to be. In fact, that it is kind of funny when you think about it. None of us really landed with the touch bar, but so many of us landed with the Stream Deck. I've never really thought about that. No, but the Stream Deck is physical, isn't it? You always know which button you're pressing. It's, my, it's muscle memory as well, but you know you're on the top row, you know in the middle. The touch bar, I actually liked it the few times I used it, but in I can imagine in general, I would be forever looking down to see what I'm pressing. And I'm a touch typist, so that would be an irritant every time to me. So, This episode of Mac Power Users, it is made possible by Sourcegraph. So you've hired a brilliant developer. That's great, but now you have to get them onboarded. If your company is growing, onboarding new developers is going to be a common occurrence, but it's a big undertaking each time. Because one of the biggest challenges for new hires is to get up to speed with the project their new team has already been working on. This can be tricky if the code bases your developers are working in are already large. Thankfully, Sourcegraph makes it easy to move quickly even in big code bases. Developers know that knowledge is most useful when it's findable. Centralization is helpful, but given the fact that most companies store knowledge in at least two different locations, how do you make knowledge accessible to those who need it? 
Well, SourceGraph is a code intelligence platform giving developers what they need to drive their own learning over time and in different situations. Teams without SourceGraph need to rely on asking colleagues or reviewing out-of-date documentation, which is both cumbersome and time-consuming. But with SourceGraph, every developer can search across millions of repositories and find specific code, saving time for themselves and everyone else. So when questions do come up, you know it's the big stuff that's worth that extra time. SourceGraph was created to make developers' lives easier. And today they work with leading companies across every industry, including three out of the five top tech companies, plus PayPal, Uber, Plaid, GE, Reddit, Atlassian, and more. Visit about.sourcegraph.com. That's about.sourcegraph.com to find out why some of the biggest tech companies in the world use SourceGraph and to see what it can do for you. Or just click the link in the show notes to let them know you heard about them from us. Our thanks to SourceGraph for their support of Mac Power users and RelayFM. All right, William. So I want to talk about your writing workflows. You're a guy who pays for his shoes uh, with that keyboard. And I know you've been doing this a long time. What are the apps and and services that make it possible for you to get all this output? Oh, uh, okay. You sounded so ominous when you started that. I got worried, and then you made it so it's actually quite difficult. You get so used to these things, yeah. Um, and sure. I just stopped to think. Um, I well, let's, let's take script writing first. Script writing tends to be I, I quite like final draft um, compared to Word, for example. So final draft is key to me, but I also use Omni Outliner alongside it. I, I recently realized after doing it for several years that I kind of think into Omni Outliner about a script. I'll tell myself how far I've got with a script, what I think isn't working, what I need to look at in the next session and over time it's become like the script diary of the development of lots of stage plays and radio productions and things like that um, and radio actually needs different things from final draft pages is better for radio uh doctor who actually prefers word but you write in pages and you export to that doctor who on radio uh, that is uh doctor who on tv's final draft uh and little utilities like actually the uh, most recent 58 keys video i've done uh is all about text soap which is this tiny utility I'm sure you know of. Oh, that yeah. just tidies up the smallest thing. It's the smallest thing. But I changed something. I can't remember what it was now. And I uh, maybe when I moved Max and suddenly it wasn't there and I appreciated how much I use it every day. So that's in the mix too. Actually, if I think about what I did with Bunch for screenwriting, it opens up Final Draft Pages on the Outliner, Texo, but also Keyboard Maestro, also Hazel, Um OmniFocus, my to-do app is always open, but those are kind of hidden in the background while I work. And then if I swap over to Apple Insider, uh, there's Slack, there's Pixelmator Pro, there's Safari, there's Chrome. Uh, I love Reader, the news reading app. That's just a joy to use that one. Um, what else is there for that? And Drafts 5 is actually where I write most articles, I've realized. All right. So that you gave us a lot there to digest. So oh, let, let's, okay. take, let, let's take that in pieces. So the we talked about in the last segment about Bunch. So it sounds to me like you're using Bunch kind of like as your setup app to set up your screen for different workflows. But then you mentioned Omni Outliner. So now when now when you do an Omni Outliner for a script, is does it start in final draft at the same time or is it just start as a as an outline? In Omni Outliner. The problem is, um, I actually 
I think Omni Outline is a bit misnamed because I don't like outlines. I don't like planning for things. Uh, you, you can be contractually obliged to prepare an outline in advance and then a treatment and things. And in that case, when I've done that, Omni Outline is where it's begun and it's ended up in pages or words to go to somebody. Uh, it's just I find Omni Outline is, is good in, to help my head focus on anything that's big. And yeah. typically, it isn't a whole script. It's what I want that script to do. And I have done a full plan in Omni Outliner. I've also accidentally written articles by thinking, well, these are the five things I know this article's got to do. And I'll reach one point and I think, well, if I say that, I've got to say this. And then I'll wonder, well, how am I going to phrase that? So I'll try a sentence and then hit return and suddenly I'm writing the next paragraph and the next and the next. And yeah. then the entire article is in there. It's like the, outs the inside of my head in screen being kneaded around. Yeah, and that's one of the advantages of Omni Outliner is it's an outline, but you can also, it's got text fields where you can just go nuts inside of them. And, yeah. and we've talked to people who've written books and, you know, scripts in Omni Outliner and then they eventually export it. But I was more thinking, like, if, you, if you're if you starting a new project, you know, a, a play or a screenplay, I mean, do you have, like, what are the headings in Omni Outliner? Is it like the acts or is it the main scenes? I mean, just curious how you like start organizing that mentally with the digital tools. It's not even that organized. Uh, I think I tend to go to script too soon, generally. Uh, I'm very willing to write a lot and then throw it away if it's rubbish. Um, Omni Outline has become this crutch for me as I'm, I don't want to go into the script yet and I want to think about it. So, I don't often leap around. Usually I know where I'm starting and I know what it's about and I know who it's about. And I will just follow through where it goes, either in Omni Atlanta or too often in script and then throw things away. But every once in a while, I had this thing I pitched for a show here where I think it didn't work out in the end, but along the process, uh, they wanted me to send in episode ideas. And I th obviously I agreed to that. I come up with ideas all the time going to be yeah. a doddle the odd one paragraph thing but no they required one page fully worked out stories and in that case i did 30 i think and i would go into omni outliner with it was a medical show so pick a disease right slap that in the middle of omni outliner um go above it what is the worst case of that illness who is what sort of character would be most affected by it i, I did one that was just uh, somebody trapped their hand in a car door something simple like that but who <laughs> would that be what you're a horrible man laughing at that yeah. fictional injury there no, I'm, I'm just imagining you sitting there thinking okay what terrible <laughs> yes. disease is going to go on this page <laughs> yeah but then it struck me that the, the worst thing that the worst person that could happen to is a surgeon um yeah. They, uh, and then you start thinking about surgeons, and it, a bit cliche, but surgeons have quite uh, uh, an arrogant reputation, and that is their entire self-worth maybe shut off in a minute yeah. for it. How, what would they do next for it? And uh, in each of these, I can't remember if that was 30 or 40, but each of these ideas, I'd start with one line, and I'd add something before it and something after it. What must happen next? Where can I go? What are the kind of harmonics? of it. What does this actually mean? What am I real? I have this thing that I will tell you the plot of something. This is what it's about. But then I'll spend more time on what it's really about, which is you, why you're doing this, how it's connecting to you, why it's personal. And you work out all of this stuff and you get to a stage where you have 20 lines or so in on the outline. Right, that'll do. Convert that into pages, join the gaps, make them complete sentences, send them off, 
go on to the next one. Uh, like I say, I did so many of those, and it all was for nothing except I think three of them were so good that even when the whole project died, I used those ideas and went off and did with them. So that was on the outliner under pressure, and it worked very well for me. Well, I really like the way you describe that because, you know, you're a working writer. You've, you know, just like a shoemaker or anybody else, you've got to ship these things. And so you, you build it up and on the outliner. And then at one point you said you convert it to Word or Pages. What is what is that conversion? Is it like an OPML thing or are you just like dumping the text? What, how it's are you dumping the, the text. Okay. I honestly, I keep thinking I'm doing it wrong in Omniana because sometimes it comes across very nicely without dots. Sometimes it's all inset. Um, but my mind's so on the text, and, and I know I'm rewriting it anyway when it's in that form, that I don't explore it properly. Yeah, yeah. Well, one day, it, let me know <laughs> yes. if you want to help with that one day because there's actually some really easy ways to like put it out as OPML or Markdown, then you really kind of have it formatted for you. But yeah, but you know, great. you don't have time for that. You, you're just going to put it in and start writing it anyway. See, this is this is my problem. I'll get hung up on making it look beautiful while you're mm-hmm. you're already writing the next script. You know, <laughs> so well, because in, in my mind, uh, with scripts, um, I, I think scripts are beautiful, and the layout of them and the format, it's just right. A script layout has has become the way it is over a hundred years, and for reasons for it. And then I, I reddish reading scripts, but the aim is to get them made. So what I need to do is put enough in there to get people to do it the way I want them to, in theory. Anyway, drama is very collaborative kind of thing, but you, you're not, I'm, I mean, it's going to be in courier. It's going to be in 12 point. It's going to be at certain margins, certain headings, those, there is a beauty to them, but I don't have to think about it. It's always in that form. I'm concentrating on how I, put my pictures in your head. What's the harder part? Is it the coming up with the ideas and building the structure or is it like wordsmithing it after you get it into your word processor? Uh, I I mean, considering I've countless ideas, I have this list of things I want to do. Coming up with ideas is incredibly hard, actually, especially for Doctor Who. I think that's why I haven't been able to do it for ages. Doctor Who, with all this history. Yeah. Uh, there was this one with Doctor Who, the idea, it's a big finish in the BBC, the radio ones. You send them in one line so that they can look at it and go, now nah, we've got five in the desert, come up with something else. And yeah. if you know, if that isn't the case, if they like the line, you do a paragraph and you build up to a certain amount of documents before you're even paid, before you go to script. Um, but there was one idea I loved so much. I, I wrote the full uh, second or third stage. It was two pages. Uh, about half a page per episode for it, sent it off, and they sent it back under a minute later with the comment that they loved it so much that they went back in time and did it 15 years ago. And I I thought I knew Doctor Who, but I I went and I looked up, and that episode they referred to, the title of it was one word different to mine. And it's just so hard to find something new in that field that when you do, Yes, you fly on this. But yeah, the ideas are hard. I mean, Doctor Who, they've been making for what, 60 years now or something? I mean, very close, 60th anniversary next year. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, how do you come up with new stuff for that? Right. <laughs> I, mean, I do not. I mean, I, the show, the TV show is famous for having, it, it ignores itself. There is, uh, Atlantis has been destroyed at least six different ways in the TV series. But the radio ones are made, I think, by people who are even more obsessive than the TV people. So they won't do a seventh Atlantis because they know about this, which is a delight. 
so so getting back to those omni outlines, do you like do them in a sitting or is it a thing where you kind of come back to them? You've got a list of them that you're working on at any time. For those those particular ideas, things I was under such time pressure, I was trying to have to do two a day for how many weeks it was. Uh, I would jot an idea on my phone when I was going somewhere. I would add to it. Um, I would have four or five on the go, and it was just wherever I was, whatever I thought of goes into the right document. And then I would take a moment to kind of massage them a bit. And suddenly there would come a point when I thought that was enough. And then there would be a session where I specifically wrote that particular proposal document for it. And that would always be in one sitting. And I'd leave it and then come back the next day if there were time. But otherwise, uh, there really wasn't much time to change it on that. So it had to be good enough, which meant focusing on it, which actually something I've realized OmniFocus helps me with. I, I'm doing this now. I'm not doing anything else until this is done. And that's how I get through it. I was wondering if we could back up a little bit and talk about Final Draft. We've touched on this application a little bit over the years. It's a, it's a tool specifically for working on scripts. And you said something that caught my attention about the formatting, certain headers, certain typeface. Could you talk a little bit about how Final Draft works and maybe some about the the actual formatting of these documents? Is that a, is that a universal thing? Is it something that varies depending on the project? What, what does that look like? Final Draft. Uh, I, I would say that Final Draft is exceptionally good uh, at uh, what I think of as the film layout and as the, the good television layout. There are a couple of different TV script formats, particularly here in the UK, um, which Final Draft purports to do, but I don't think it really pulls it off, and it's just grotesquely ugly. Uh, dates from the 1950s, and it's more for positioning studio cameras than for human beings to read, so you just you stay away from that. EastEnders is written in that format, the big soap we have here, and it's just, I can't read those scripts. Uh, hour-long television, primetime stuff here, anything good you've heard of recently is done in the same layout as a script which means, I mean, it's always the same element, uh, scene headings, interior, exterior, wherever it is, day, night, whatever, a little bit of description, centred character names, and then a kind of block-centred dialogue for it, and that's about it, a few little twiddly pieces. There's also, sta- I, it seems to me that stage plays and radio dramas, which we have a lot more of here in the UK than you do in the States, but um, they're more like a Wild West as far as script format goes, as long as it can be read. It makes sense. I, I was a judge on a radio contest that had 40 or 50 radio scripts in. I think maybe three of them were formatted the same way. But for television, which is what I want the most, and for a film, which I've accidentally just been doing, it's this particular format uh, that uh, just feels right to me. You can do it in Word, you can do it in pages, but only with a lot of fiddling. Whereas Final Draft, it just doesn't do it any other way. So you hit return and it knows you're starting a scene. You hit the letter I and it fills out int. And if you then you know, hit the space bar, um, it might put in a, a scene heading like um, int William's office. If I've written that before in the script, it'll offer that. And day will be there, day two, day three, whatever. And I've, maybe the golden thing for me in Final Draft is um, once you're in a scene, once you've written it, when you've had William speaking and then David speaking and then Stephen speaking, the ne- when you hit return, it guesses who is going to speak next. Uh, harder with a threesome, but with two people, like a proper conversation, it knows the next person is David, the next person is William. 
for it. And so it's kind of, it, it doesn't force you to use those names, but you see it, you hit return, you carry on. And the, the upshot is you're writing an argument, you're writing an hour, you're in really intense dialogue, and you're not interrupted thinking about, I must type the name in capitals, centered, and then hit return. It's just done. They used to have this phrase called just add words, which is a bit fatuous, but it was it's kind of true. Um, and I got hooked on Final Draft long enough ago that I've been able to buy upgrades rather than buy the whole software. Now, the so- if you go out now, the software is very expensive, but the upgrades uh, are cheap enough for it that they keep me locked in. And in almost every single way, I really like it almost a lot, totally, nearly. Does that? If you, did you pick up on the undertow there? <laughs> there might be some problems. What are some of those things? Uh, Final Draft, the company, uh, is obsessed with certain things that I think are out of date now. Final Draft was developed for when scripts were printed out. So they go a bundle on making things fit on the page, making things locked pages so things don't move, a line doesn't move over to the next page. And now we send everything around in PDFs. And some of that's important, but most of it, you don't care. And I'd like them to concentrate on other things. And then you have issues like when the iPad version came out. Uh, I actually met some of the support team at an event somewhere, and I mentioned to them this huge problem with it. And they get, yeah, we've noticed that too. It's funny, isn't it? I'd, I'd like you to fix it, please, rather than just find it entertaining. Um, so I felt that they weren't as committed. And Final Draft, has the things that are great about Final Draft now are in version 12, are the same that were great when I started in version 6. And it's like every couple of years, they desperately try to find a new feature to make it worth upgrading to. And sometimes they concentrate on, I think, frippery rather than anything genuinely useful to writers. Plus, the iPad one keeps crashing on me, but there you go. Yeah, you know, it almost feels like Final Draft is, like, open to disruption. Like, every time we talk to someone who's a professional writer who uses it, a lot of people, like, respect it, but nobody really loves it. I mean, I think you've been the most yeah. positive about it of anybody we've ever talked to and, and you've yeah. got issues and uh, uh, it is funny how, you know, but they get that market dominance position. And then when people are breaking in the industry, people tell them, well, you got to make it final draft. So they just do that. And, you know, it continues. That's why I think their upgrade pricing is so key. They only sell upgrades. The number of brand new things, apart from the students coming in, maybe, I think is significantly low. Their entire market is the upgrade market. But there, I mean, if, there are many alternatives. Highland 2, I think, is the most interesting alternative. Um, it's very Mac-like, very modern. Uh, I felt it slightly more geeky. It's probably just that I had to get out of thinking of one program and into another that I didn't leap on it completely but i i quite admired highland too and that's created by an actual scriptwriter john august so yeah really knows his stuff yeah yeah we had him on the show a few years ago when he had first released it and you know it was just you know out of frustration he didn't i don't think he really wanted to become a software developer (laughs) but you know he just wanted better tools Mm-hmm. But then you also do a lot of scripts in pages and, and Word. So do you yeah. have like custom templates for that? Ish. I mean, ish. I'm doing a thing now. I had a radio project go, well, calamitously wrong a few months ago. I mean, just awful project. Uh, BBC Radio Commission, everything going great, and uh, legal problems stepped in about three weeks before we were in studio and totally destroyed it. And um 
that's been quite paralyzing actually but the process of getting to that stage on that particular project was so involved that I actually did step out to make a template in pages for the format that was needed and since that's gone wrong I've been working on other radio projects and I, I actually I open up that old project again grumble a bit and save as a new version and carry on and the template is handy doesn't make up for the calamity yeah let's Pull me back from that. Um, radio uh, just needs things to be clear. So a scene, a bit of description, and who's saying what. Uh, one confusion, if you go look on BBC Writer's Room, has this incredible free resource of scripts to read. And I read a script every day. I've, I've read scripts all my life, but for the last five years, I've read at least one every day. So I've mined their radio thing. And the problem with that is they don't always explain which version you're seeing. And you will see a post-production or a PSB, a program as broadcast version of a script that has all sorts of production details in it, like how many seconds things last. And when you're actually writing it, when you are the writer at the start coming up with it, none of that matters. You don't care about any of it. And you can just concentrate on quite simple things that, yes, can be templated, which means uh, I have a keystroke that changes the style into one I've done for scene headings and then back to one for dialogue and action. And uh, It's actually not as fast as Final Draft for it, but I was right. I wrote for an hour last night. I did about nine pages of a radio script in a session last night. And I, you, again, you feel like you're, you're, you're hearing the speaking. You're not concentrating on the formatting so much. Something that's really kind of evolved in my mind over the last five to 10 years are grammar tools and like writing aids. And, you know, I think of things like Grammarly or like IA Writer, which highlights your adverbs. Uh, there's all these new tools out to help people with the writing process. Is that stuff of use at all for writing scripts? I almost think it might get in the way, but I was curious if you played with it and what your thoughts are on it. I won't use any of them. I loathe them. I did have one client that insisted I use Grammarly, and I just kind of went, uh-huh, hmm. and yeah, that's it. It's at the time. And we moved on to other things. Uh, what is it? Just recently, in the last couple of days, I think it might even have been in pages, your Y-O-U apostrophe R-E was being picked up as grammatically incorrect in the sentence. And there was, you know, here's your T was the sentence or something like that. There was no possibility in any English, American, anything. It was completely wrong. And there's no reason why it should be there. And after all these years of grammar checkers, if they still can't get that kind of thing right, I, I find it wrong. And I'm also, I'm not somebody who likes to write and then go back to correct punctuation. Because to me, punctuation is as much a part of the dialogue as anything else. It's like, it's Commas are where you're breathing. Uh, parentheses are where you are doing an aside. The way you type it is as important as the words to me. So I concentrate a lot on that. And then getting that little red squiggly line with, that it's wrong just drives me spare. So I ignore all of them. Yeah, I mean, it's dialogue, right? So you don't want everybody yes. to speak proper grammarly English, right? It doesn't no, make sense. I should say, whatever gets you to the finishing line, Fine. I can't, I, I cannot ever recommend, there are apps that say, give us a character name and we'll create a story. Well, no, just forget those. That's nonsense. Uh, grammar checkers, if you need them, you use them. Um, I do have a friend who writes scripts and he's more an actor, I think, than a writer. And when he sends me a script, 
It's appallingly bad in the grammar bit, but I know before he sends it to a producer, he will fix it. And I never asked him, actually. I think maybe he uses tools like this. So all that matters is the words on the page and however you get there. But for me, I actually find Grammarly offensive. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel rude. Uh, no, I, I think there are people for whom Grammarly is really helpful. But for mm. a script writer, I feel like it would be like throwing hand grenades into your script. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Memberful, best-in-class membership software for independent creators, publishers, educators, podcasters, and more. Get started now with no credit card required. Just go to memberful.com MPU. Memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience used by the biggest creators on the web. With Memberful, you can generate sustainable recurring income while diversifying your revenue stream. You may have heard me talking about the Max Sparky Labs or Stephen about the Relay FM membership program. Both of those programs run on Memberful. It's the platform that we use, and it makes it super easy to generate that extra revenue stream and deliver bonus content to our members. When I first decided to go independent, I wasn't sure where to go. I went to Memberful, and I've been so happy with the decision. They have been so accommodating to me as I've set up the Max Sparky Labs. Every time I come up with some new crazy idea for a member feature, they help me make it happen. I'm really happy. I've got podcasts, newsletters, I've got regular videos going out, and everything just works with Memberful. The stuff that faces the members is done really well, and frankly, the admin stuff on the back is just as good. Memberful has made it possible for me to make this big transition in my life. I'm super happy as a member. This couldn't be an easier ad read to give you. So maybe you're already producing content and relying on advertising or other means of income. Memberful makes it easy to diversify that income with everything you need to run a membership program, including custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay, free trials, and private podcasts, and tons more, while leaving you with full control and ownership of everything that relates to your audience, your brand, and your membership. And now you can send paid email newsletters directly through Memberful without needing to connect to a third-party email provider. You can even publish your paid newsletter content to a Memberful-hosted members-only website. And there's no additional fee when signed up for Memberful's Pro or Premium plans. Plus, you'll save money compared to other popular hosted newsletter platforms. So get started for free at memberful.com MPU. There's no credit card required. Once again, that's memberful.com slash MPU. Go there now and check it out. See what it could do for your business. Our thanks to Memberful for their support of the Mac Power users and all of FM. So um, we've talked a lot about your, your various roles, both past and present. And I wonder in all of that, how do you make time for the uh the idea process you know you you've mentioned that that's obviously a huge component of what you do how do you how do you keep time for that uh i'm actually very poor at this uh, i don't relax much um i don't I, I i think i've been very lucky that everything i have ever loved doing i've managed to make part of my work but this means there's nothing i do nothing i enjoy that isn't work related so switching off and having that moment to just let things fester and grow is quite rare. Um, I used to have to drive to London and back once or twice a week. And that would be, uh, I couldn't write on the way, but I would find, it's very ungreen, but I would come up with so many ideas on the way. Occasionally, I'd pull the car over and write them down fastly. Fastly, is that a real word? What am I doing there? <laughs> and then on, on the way back, doing the same. Um, 
It tends to be that I do have a thing. I have a little shortcut on my iPhone. So in the middle of the night, I can tap a button and write down the sentence I'm dreaming. And then the next morning I, I open up Apple Notes and there it says, write about socks, you know, and you doesn't really help but you start thinking about it and i make the odds i say the odd thought i particularly hear a lot of dialogue in my head when i'm having conversations uh it's like the characters are still talking in the background and sometimes that sparks a totally different idea i think i've been well i don't really believe in luck i think it's all work but usually whatever i'm working on there's something else bothering me like this small little thing interests me bothers me niggles me and i will take a as little time as I can to go off and just make notes about that. And that tends to become the next thing. And when I'm doing that, then there's another little thing that bothers me for it. But I don't have a formal process and, and I uh, I miss it. As a woman who called Haley McKenzie, who runs a company called Script Angels, like a script editing service, exceptional company, and I deeply admire her. And she, in the very start of running her own business, she decided to take every Friday off work and concentrate she said on her business instead of in her business and she's grown this into an international thing now and i try to emulate her but there's no way i can get a whole day so i try to take the odd hour and just step away from the screen and try to work on these things it's a funny balance isn't it you think um i go into schools a lot as a visiting author and they ask you about what it's like spending all day just thinking up things and you think well it is great but also you don't pay the mortgage if you don't think of them so it can get really quite pressured and i mentioned a play that had gone wrong um there were points during the writing of that when i would wake up in the morning and i would be shaking because all night i'd been thinking about it shaking and sweating over it uh, it gets that deep into you and it's a slightly scary but it's also fantastic you know and what comes out of it the other end I'm, I'm very pleased with that script even though it's the best thing i ever wrote and the idea came to me from a request from a friend for it who knows where the smallest thing can lead but i wish i were more disciplined in seeking out the time i'm a bit of a firefighter rather than a planner which is my one of my problems well, you know, in addition, though, to developing the ideas and keeping the factory running, like with your, you know, with the guild and with, you know, one of the things you told me offline is it's not enough just to write something good. You also have to to push it forward. You have to find producers and kind of get things made in order to yeah. make it work in this industry. Um, what you, you've mentioned OmniFocus. So that, I guess, is your main task manager application. Yeah, I occasionally use Due for things that have to be done at a certain time, but uh, I live in OmniFocus. Um, it, it's it's part of me. It's open now on everything, and uh, yes, I can't get enough of OmniFocus. In fact, actually, I liked OmniFocus so much that that's why I tried out Omni Outliner. I thought, I'll just see what else the company has done, and yeah. I couldn't afford OmniPlan um, yeah. just as a casual purchase, and then got hooked into them both. Actually, I remember writing about OmniFocus a long time ago when I first started using it. I wrote somewhere that first it destroys your mind and then it controls your soul. <laughs> well, that's it, good marketing. I'm sure they'd love that over the Army Group. <laughs> it's a lot better now. Uh, I've been, I'm the on-ramp all those years ago, 10 years ago now, it was quite steep. It was for me. Yeah. I, remember I came from another to-do app. Um and I didn't like OmniFocus at first. I wanted to go back to the other one, but the other one didn't do this thing and it didn't do that thing. Yeah. And I've yeah, got yeah. to have that thing. And then the next thing you know, 
Yeah. I, I am going through the same thing. I've been looking at other options lately. I've been working on it in the Max Berkey labs, but I keep coming back to OmniFocus because it's just so powerful. But and yeah. then and then you've got all the communications that are involved with with managing all these projects. I think at one point you said you use Slack, but like mm-hmm. what how do you manage email? You must actually probably have quite a bit of it. I do get a lot of email, but the thing is, I actually uh, relish email. I can't get enough of it. Um, I write at the moment, just after I was appointed uh, writer, there was a certain issue going on that I was involved with the Writers Guild, that when I was officially appointed, my first task was to write 80 emails to people that weren't quite the same. And by the end of the 80th, I was thinking, yeah, this could have gone smoother. But generally speaking, I enjoy email conversations. I, I just I can't get enough of talking with people. So email is actually a, a pleasure in my life, except when it mounts up for things. Yes. Um, the way I'm actually, I'm finding it very frustrating now on the Mac OS Ventura um, beta on the Mac because uh, yeah, the follow-up reminders in mail that it has. Yeah. I can't find a way to switch that off. So I will reply to somebody and I'll say, yes, I'll do it. That's the end of that conversation. But a few days later, it comes back up with a, they haven't responded to this. Do it. And, well, they wouldn't. They're not supposed yeah. to. It's frustrating. Yeah. So. Yeah. Until I think when that's in place, that's going to help me. It helped me a lot with the AT, actually, the the scheduling emails and stuff. I could automate it more. But um, it's actually, it feels like part of writing. When you're talking to a producer, you're you're trying to pitch something. I'm crafting things in the email, and it's don't take my email away. Okay. Yeah, and it sounds like using Apple Mail. That that feature you're talking about, I actually submitted a bug report on it too because it's yeah. a little too aggressive in terms of yeah. the follow up stuff. But um, but Apple Mail in general, you've been happy with it. Yeah, every now and again I try others because there are things, there are various features in all of them that, you know, every alternative has some feature I like, but then they just, they crash or they don't quite work the way they should. Something, to, I just, I find myself going back to mail and in the end I just forget it. I'll stay on mail. I like it a lot. There are more things I wish it could do, but what it does, I think it does well. One of the other things you told us in preparation for today, you know, is is you make your living moving that cursor across the screen. And you have a very set kind of daily work routine. Could you share that with us? Yeah, it's only been – it's always a set routine because there are always certain projects, but the projects change, and so the day changes. At the moment, I will get up around 5 o'clock, and as, as soon after that as I can, I will open the MacBook Pro in my living room, run a writing focus that just kills everything except final draft pages and on the outliner. And I, I, I will work for one hour on whatever the current script project is. Usually the script that I'm not supposed to be working on, you know, the other idea, I will give myself a solid 60 minutes. And I have this thing that it will be 60 minutes. It will not be 59. It will not be 61. So somewhere around 30 or 40 minutes in, well, you're spent, really. You're fed up of it. You just want to go make breakfast, actually, in that time in the morning. But if you stick with it to the end of the hour, some just just sometimes what you come up with is the best thing you've written. And always, if you end it on 60, no matter what, either you're relieved and a bit pleased with yourself having done it, or you're so into it, you're excited, and you know you'll come back tomorrow fresh. So that's like my first major hour. And then uh, there are about a dozen things I have to do every day, uh, very quick things. I'll try to knock off a few of those. 
when my wife Angela gets up around seven or eight, I'll cook us breakfast. And then uh, I've got about an hour in which I often do 58 keys writing or filming and things, my YouTube series. Then if I'm working with Apple Insider, that tends to be from 10 a.m. And obviously I'm only working for them when I'm working for them. So that's 10 till six-ish or so. I, I tell my mom that I work from five till six and she thinks it's only an hour. So that's, she <laughs> thinks I've got, I live the life. Um, yeah, let her think then, that. Exactly. And then into the evenings, I run a lot of workshops and things. So uh, it, it, that's actually, you know, when you say it out loud, that sounds like quite a long day. Doesn't feel like it, though. Yeah, well, you're doing all this stuff that you love, but but I do like the idea. I mean, there, there's a famous Mark Twain speech about eating your frog. You know, if you're going to eat mm. your frog, the first thing you should do is eat your frog. And getting up yeah. and before you do anything else, just knocking out an hour or two of like substantive work. Then the rest of the day, they can't take that away from you, no matter how much things exactly. get turned upside down. Good phrase. A quote I heard just recently, I'm reading Jane Austen's letters, and there's a line in there where she says, um, I'm in no humor to write. I must write on until I am. I thought, yeah, 200 years ago, and she's nailed what I do for it. And, yeah, that's another reason for doing the hour. I'm actually, it's funny, I'm I'm quite strong on this hour business, uh, the Writers Guild stuff. Most, very, very few of my work projects can be done in one sitting. Almost none of them, really. They're all going to take a while, but I will give myself a definite thing. If I'm writing a pitch, I will write this pitch until it is done. I might come back to it another day, but I won't leave it in the middle of a sentence to get tea. I will finish it, and then I will do the next thing for it. And when things can't be measured as easily as that, it will be I will do an hour for the Writers Guild. I'll do an hour for BBC Radio or whatever it is like that. And that's seems to add up. I, I, actually, I don't know why I do this, but I, I count quite a lot of things. So uh, in 20, November, I think it was 2012, was the first time I was asked to speak at a literary festival. And I wrote it down in Apple Notes, number one, the name of this literary festival. And I keep adding to it. And I've just crossed about 950 public speaking appearances and workshops and things. And I look at that and I think... Well, most of those people ask me back. I can't have been doing that badly for it. And when things are a bit bleak, you look at this, you think, well, at least you're getting something done, which is is very powerful for me as a writer sitting on my own most of the day. Yeah, yeah I think as humans, it's, it's a very easy failing to always measure the difference between mm. where we are and where we want to be instead oh. of measuring where we are and where we started. And that's that's the the positive one. If you look, hey, look how far you've come. It's okay, mm-hmm. and it's, for some reason, it's just so hard for as as humans to do that. Instead, we're always thinking, but I haven't done this yet, or I haven't done that yet. You know. Yeah, the list of things I haven't done. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's hard to get bleak there. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> now, now, Apple Notes. Let's get back to nerdy stuff. So, I heard you say Apple Notes. Are you yeah. um, are you invested in that? Do you have a lot of stuff in there? I am, and I do now. I was very much an Evernote evangelist until they they drove me away. I had this thing, you know, if you pay for Evernote, you get 24-hour support, and you need it sometimes. But one of the problems I had with them was that they forgot I was a paying customer. 
So they would not answer within 24 hours. My problem about they should be answering in 24 hours. It took them about 10 days to come back with me of a solution for that. And just around the same time, I was going to an event uh, somewhere I hadn't been before. And I had the plan in Evernote, but also the directions about to get there. And on the way, for some reason, and who knows why, I let it update Evernote. And that was disaster. It was a Saturday morning. It bricked Evernote because it was when they introduced this feature that they scanned every note you've got and added some link to, I don't know, the Washington Post or something, something nobody but a sponsor of Evernote ever wants. But it examined every note and you couldn't get into the database for it. And I couldn't remember the directions for where I was going. I managed to just kind of guess and I got near enough. And I remembered the thing I had to say, so that was all right. But that was a Saturday morning and it was a time when Evernote didn't have support staff on a Saturday morning. So they rolled out a bricking event uh, update without support for it. And it was an update that benefited their bottom line and was no benefit to any user at all. I just started getting so fed up with them until actually about a year ago, they talked me into it or somebody persuaded me to try them again. And I got the trial version and I found a bug in the trial version. And I thought, if you can't get the trial version. I can't trust you with all of this stuff. And by then I'd moved over enough to Apple Notes that it had become, I think, I, yeah, I was an Evernote evangelist and now I'm like an anti-evangelist, aren't yeah. I? You can hear the anger there. Sorry about that, Evernote, but you drove me to, you know, this thing that if you have a problem, uh, they'll extend your paid uh, um license period or whatever i realized i didn't have to pay them for three years because they kept adding on that extra month for every problem i had and it came to a point where we started thinking it's free but i'm still getting the problems so yes evernote is behind me sir i, I really feel like apple notes is kind of aimed at evernote customers because mm. it's kind of it's multimedia you know they've they're adding like the text recognition stuff in the operating system but it's, you know, it's done differently mm-hmm. um I, I do think if someone is an Evernote user, that Apple Notes might be something you should look at because yeah. it's already on your device and uh, you don't have to deal with it. The problem I always had with Evernote is getting data out of it is not easy. Yeah. Whereas with Apple Notes, you can just drag stuff out of it. But that is, I don't think it's always been clear to people, but really Apple Notes is aimed at Evernote more than it's aimed at really any other app that I know of. I hadn't thought of that, but now you've said it. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you were doing all these different things, uh, and a feature that comes to mind for me, especially in this beta season, because that's much nicer in iOS 16, is focus modes. Is that something that you've taken advantage of? No. I really thought it would be, and I have one. I have my writing focus mode that just shuts everything up. But um, I was doing this. I got really into it um, when I was 15, introduced it, and I thought this is the answer to everything. I can cut out so much. But then um, I I was doing something where I picked up my iPhone and I switched off the focus mode to do something, and in that second, the phone rang with an offer of work. Um, (laughs) I don't don't do a lot on BBC radio. There's local radio in the BBC. I'll, I'll... I'll speak, I'll contribute. I did the odd thing. A couple of, four or five times a year, maybe. But small things and just a lot of fun. And apparently I'd missed one because of focus mode and I nearly missed that for it. So the idea of cutting out phone calls, I love the idea of cutting out phone calls because I get so many spam calls. But 
BBC local radio is based all across the country, even within any one region. You countless phone numbers. There's no way to predict what they were. So I can't block phone calls. And when I realized I couldn't do that, it kind of stopped me bothering to explore anything else. I mean, I, I understand there are more options now and I'm I'm drawn back to it, but I'm not there yet. Can you sort me out? How can you get rid of these? <laughs> how can you get rid of the bad calls and keep the good ones? Uh, you really, there's there's not a magic recipe in focus mode for that. It, with the new version of iOS 16 coming out, they have given you the option to say, let everything in. You know, Originally, it was cut out all phone calls except the ones that I say are okay. And now you can say, allow all phone calls except the ones I say are bad. <laughs> so that might help you, you know, because yes. that, the BBC would not be a banned number. And if no. there were if there were people that were routinely bugging you that you didn't want to hear from when you're in focus mode, that would help. Yeah. But you know the the problem of the unknown sales call that you need to get work that actually is I think yeah. it runs contrary to a lot of the stuff that focus mode's trying to do. Uh, this might just be a UK thing. I don't know if it helps anywhere else, but I found if I pick up the phone and I don't answer, I mean I don't speak. Uh, there's just a few seconds pause and then a bleep 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 and they cut off when it's a spam call, and if it's a real yeah. person, well, they feel insulted, but eventually they say something. So I'm I'm used to pick up the phone, waiting and putting it down again straight away. But it still breaks your concentration, and that's what I would love to find a way to avoid. Yeah, and but, you know, that might be your next gig, and that, that you know, obviously you don't want to yeah. miss that. So, like, I'm fortunate enough that I can, if I don't recognize a number, it, it doesn't pick up, and then if it's a human, they leave me a message and I call them back. But... That is a challenge for focus mode, but I, the the iOS sixteen will make it easier. And, and just in general, a lot of people were looking for focus modes where they could say, "Hey, I have a bunch of clients, and I don't want to have to manually add every client." Well, you can open it up where you could say, "Like, okay, I'm going to work on client work now. Let all calls through, but you know, block the ones from you know friends or family that you know call you often, and then you don't have those interruptions at least while you're in that mode." But yeah, you're gonna have to play with it and see. I'd be curious to see if you can make that work for you with this new method. Yeah, am I right that in the new version um, you can shut off um, mailbox? Like I have a my yeah. own mail account, and so I can tell it don't show me any writer's guild stuff for the next hour. Yeah, that. you can do that. Oh, that would be a good thing. That'd be a boon. Yeah, and that is going to be addressable by third parties. So like. Like if you use Fantastic Hal, Fantastic Hal could say, "Okay, only show me the work-related calendar now." And uh, maybe OmniFocus could say, "Only show me the you know work-related you know writing tasks and not the guild tasks." So I think there's some real merit to that, but we're too early in the process to see how those third-party integrations are going to work and how effective they are. But th there could really be something to this. I I'm really happy that Apple spent time and effort on it this year. And clearly, I think that they, they want to make a system that makes it easier for people to focus, which to me is kind of a big deal. You mentioned Fantastical there, and that's what I use. But you also mentioned a work calendar and other things. And I, I find there's no use to that to me, because if I had a Writer's Guild calendar and I scheduled an event for Monday at 9 o'clock, but on my home calendar, there is nothing at all to stop me putting another event at the same time unless I'm showing all the calendars so I suppose because I don't have a job I go to, I don't have set hours for it, I, I use one calendar. And maybe I share things. We have a share calendar with my wife, but I always display it. 
as well. So multiple calendars and switching is this brilliant thing that's of unfortunately no use to me. Yeah, sure. Everybody's got kind of a different way to go about that stuff. Mm. Mind you, this is 649th episode of Mac Bailey. I thought you were going to find some brilliant way to convince me to use work and home calendars. And I was going to go away impressed, but no, no. I look. I am so far at the opposite end of the spectrum for you on that, William. <laughs> <If> you, <laughs> I have. I, I literally have lost track of how many calendars I have. It's definitely above twenty. So just wow. Yeah. So you use twenty calendars. You don't drink the right cup of tea. How are we even talking to each other? Yeah, I don't <laughs> know how this is this is possible. <laughs> this episode of MPU is brought to you by Indeed. A quick question for you. What would you do if your business had to hire great people fast? Well, here's a hint. You need Indeed to get that done. Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. One of the things that's really cool about Indeed is how they just know how to make hiring pain-free. Like how with Indeed, you only have to pay if an applicant meets your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest in 2019. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed is doing something that no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. So visit Indeed.com slash MPU to start hiring now. That's I-N-D-E-E-D, Indeed.com slash mpu terms and conditions apply if you need to hire you need indeed our thanks to indeed for their support of the show uh, william we always like to end the show uh, talking about some of our guests favorite apps and services i know you are doing a lot of stuff with your mac uh can you share some of your favorite little apps that bring you joy and delight Oh, yes, please. Right. Um, this can go on for a while, right? We can, nobody's going anywhere. It's just, yeah. yeah um, right. We've got another three hours. It's fine. <laughs> okay. How about this tiniest thing? There's a Mac app called HB Clock, and I have no idea why it's called HB, but it puts up Jumba the, uh, the on screen clock, analog clock used to have with the very earliest days of Mac OS X. It puts one of those up on the screen. And Maybe because I have a wide monitor and the menu bar clock is just like half a mile over that way. When I'm doing events or running any kind of workshops, I open that and it's right there next to me and I find it a delight to just do things. There you go. Tiny but really useful. Makes me happy. Yeah, I have no idea this one existed. And, you know, I'm going to add from earlier, we didn't follow up on the one you had mentioned, TechSoap. I think oh, yes. that deserves a note because it is an amazing app. I met the developer once. It's just a single oh. guy developing this app, but that has got me out of trouble so often with bad text. I just wanted to point yeah. that one out. 
There's actually, a, I mean, I have a lot of keyboard maestros. There you go, keyboard maestro, another one. I have lots of things in that where um, if I need to put a link in an article, well, I'll copy the URL first, then I'll cut whatever the text is I want to turn to a link. I'll type X href and keyboard maestro takes the clipboard from there, the clipboard from just now, wraps the HTML text in, pops it back into place. Do loads of things like that. But actually on Apple Insider, there's one bit where there's a paragraph that tends to have a link in it, but the same text is also needed somewhere else without a link. And Texo, two buttons, gone. And, and it does it within pages or within drafts using services. And it's just so fast and such a delight for it. So Texo, it's what, $50 or something? And I use it for two things. More than worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I just mentioned clocks. Um, I, I'm running a, a set of uh, experimenting with a new uh, workshop recently where, yes, I do a typical writing workshop that, I, that I'm often hired to do. But also right in the middle, there is a 60 minute session where all of us just write. Um, not on the same thing, not at the same time. We're just all there silently writing. And um, I use Zoom for it, but I use OBS instead of the camera. And using OBS, uh, open broadcast software, I think it is, I insert a timer that puts up, you know, 60 minutes to go, 59, all this. I did it once with a group of teenagers in a workshop, and you should see their faces, 20 teenagers recoiling at this. But just two nights ago, I did it with what, half a dozen adult writers. And it focused all of them, and it focused me as well. So OBS and a timer, that's uh, another one. Um, uh, I'm learning motion. That's a bit of a big one, and it okay. still thwarts me a lot, but I like it. What led to that? Well, because 58 Keys, I got, um, I got funding to do a kind of a new and a updated version of this YouTube series I do. And I thought, well, it's got to have a proper title sequence. So I started trying to do animated wipes and things. And I had this big idea for a massive production number, but I'd just gone through motion. I'd got these red bars, swiping bars, title coming in. And I thought, actually, I quite like that. So I've left it as that. And I have wipes to do different things when I've saved them into... Final Cut Pro, and I've had that for about a year now. It might be time to change it again, but I honestly find Motion is the one app that really throws me. I feel like I have to relearn it every time I try, but yeah. I love the end result. So uh, VLC and Plex, I watch a lot of video, and TV VLC, it's not the prettiest app, but it plays more different formats, and I end up, you know, I get a screen of discs from here, or I'll get a download link from somewhere else, and VLC will play everything. So you yeah, we, we haven't mentioned that one on the show for years, but that is VLC is the media player that will play anything you throw at it. It is it is surprising how often uh, you'll have a video that just won't work anywhere, and then you open VLC and it'll manage to play it for you. It's amazing, and and it's all open source, and so people are contributing to it. And if there's some sort of weird issue or new format that comes out that, you know, sometimes Mac OS itself doesn't even support VLC mm. will, will be there ready to go. Yeah, it's funny. It's one of those things where when you move to a new Mac, you can't work out why isn't it playing this video? And that's why, why isn't it responding to this keystroke? Cause you haven't installed keyboard moisture, right? Uh, text expander. I use that a lot as well for certain of these emails that I keep having to write the 80 odd emails. Um, if that's not there, I miss it. When I moved to the MacBook pro, uh, the 14 inch one i deliberately didn't bring anything it's like when i need it install that but yeah. after a morning i was so fed up i want to need that as well and, I need that. And, and where is alfred when you need it there alfred 4 as well i uh, just got to have 
Alfred having oh, it. Guys, guys, Alfred Five, you can get it now. It's it's pre release, but you can get it. So really? just go to the Alfred website. Yeah. They, they, they <laughs> right, I'm off now. Okay, okay. I've got to get that. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. We just <laughs> lost the guest. But yeah, they, they redid the automation stuff. It's really nice. We're, Steve and I we're gonna have to we're gonna have to cover that. But yeah, it, it's just yeah, that, that app just got a lot better too. Actually, can I tell you a feature of something? I mean, I mentioned it before, Keyboard Monster, but you said about giving joy. Um, Pixelmator Pro, are you, if, particularly if I'm on Apple Insider, I, I do all the illustration in that, and I love the app. It's very nice. But by the end of a day, I will have maybe 20 images open, and I don't need them anymore. The, the finished result is done, saved, published. I just need to close the tabs, and I should just close them when I'm done, but you're in the middle of things, you don't get around to it. At the end of the day, there are 20 tabs, and are you certain that every one of them can be closed? Probably. I have a keyboard maestro keystroke that just closes every single one. Clicks the do not save button for me gets rid of it a lot and i sit back and i watch it go and it feels like that's the end of the day peaceful restful until the last one for some reason i can't get it to close the very last image but you know it'll do 19 of the 20 and it, that makes me happy as well well william i want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing all of this with us i love hearing the workflows of creative people and you're using your mac back from that mac se right until today to yes. get some great stuff written where can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter as W Gallagher. That's where I tend to lurk. That's becoming more of an official account because of the Writers Guild. But most of the things I say, they're mine and they're daft anyway. So Twitter, W Gallagher will do. And I'm on YouTube. It's a William Gallagher channel. It's called 58 Keys, 58-K-E-Y-S. And I didn't explain why. Well, why? Tell us, tell us that story. Of course, of all the places to not mention it, uh, it it's... It, it harks back to the original Mac. The very first Mac had 54 keys on it, and explicitly so because Steve Jobs insisted that there wouldn't be any cursor keys so that people would learn how to use the mouse. Yeah. So, yes, that was interesting. I think that's interesting that he did it and the mouse and all this stuff. But the Mac became Windows, became everything else, and I offer that there is no human endeavor, artistic or otherwise, that hasn't gone through a keyboard in the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, if you were a sculptor, you still had to email your art gallery for it, give the title yeah. through it. The keyboard is part of everything. And particularly, I think, obviously, as a writer. I have a friend who points out that writers went digital first. We went digital so soon that when people keep going on about digital, we think, is this a new digital and stuff? We are yeah. here in the apex of technology. And I believe it really, you can make a good case that it started with that Mac and that 58 key keyboard. Yeah, I love that. I love That's, that. Cool. That's great. And then you also have a website, williamgallagher.com. Yes, and there's a blog on it about writing every Friday called Self-Distract. Um, I'm still proud of that title. came to me one day, and it's just – I'm surprised how many people read it. I actually get complaints when I don't upload on time for it, which is just so heartening for it. But it's nothing important. It's just me wibbling on about writing. So Yeah, but you know, also on the theme of today, if you're a writer listening and you'd like to learn more about William's productivity – he wrote a book called The Blank Screen, Productivity for Creative Writers. And yes. I'm, I think anybody that's listening to this that's interested, that's a, that's a book that's worth checking out. Thank you. I'm very proud of that book. Yeah. Well, it took us way too long to get on the show, but now you're on our Rolodex, so we are going to be talking <laughs> to you more in the future. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, William. Great pleasure to be here. 
Thank you to our sponsors, 1Password, Sourcegraph, Memberful, and Indeed. Everybody go check out Steven's calendar on that Kickstarter. we got a link in the show notes. It's really cool. Uh, we are the Mac Power users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. And you can find the forums at talk.macpowerusers.com. And we'll see you next time.